This episode is brought to you by Patreon sponsor Greg Smirdell. For more information on becoming a sponsor of the podcast, visit Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash School of Laughs. Thanks, Greg. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Just finished up a writing class, the third of three, with, I think, ten of the sharpest minds in all of Nashville, Tennessee. Introduce yourself, let them know who you are, and then fire away your question. Okay, uh, my name is Austin, and uh, I want to know just exactly where is the line, or, or is there a line that I cannot cross in comedy? All right, so as far as like content and and the uh, the dirty level of it, or the edgy level of it, and all yes. that kind of stuff? So the real answer is it's going to depend on who you're performing in front of, and how much slack they're going to give you. And so as you proceed, you'll need to kind of make sure the audience you're in front of is appropriate for the material that you've got. So how do you know if you haven't performed in front of that audience before? If you're at a club, you want to run some jokes by the manager or ask them if you've got a joke in particular you're worried about. Like, yeah, I've got this joke about something horrific, something horrific, and then something more horrific. Is that okay to do? And they might think, hey, man, whatever you want to do is fine. And others will go, you know, maybe not your first time out here. Let's see what else you got. In general, when you're trying to get work from a lot of clubs, they're going to want to see that you can work clean. Most of them want to see that you can work clean. That way they can put you up in the hosting spot where you're a fresh, happy face in front of 300 strangers that walked in the room, and you kind of can set the tone that this is a fun place to be without getting right into some edgy, dirty stuff. You know, Lewis, uh, Lewis Black would be a great headliner, would not be the best host for a comedy show. But at some point, he had to perform and, and be the MC when he first started, so he had material that was suitable for that. But then as he kind of gained his own notoriety and his own fans, he was able to push a little bit further. So I always say write whatever you think is your funniest stuff and then try to find a way to fit that into every situation that you're in. And so you'll have cleaner versions of some, some of who you are. You'll have some edgier stuff. You'll have some really dark stuff. It really depends on how, how you develop your act over time. So trust your gut with what you think is funny. Then also listen to the audience and see if it works. Okay. And then kind of adjust on the fly. Thank you. Good question, Austin. Tell us who you are. What's My name is Jason. And um, I wonder what your worst heckling situation and how you dealt with it. How you, how you dealt with that worst heckler. Yeah, I've had a few over the years, and nothing to where I couldn't really bounce back, but the most, the one where I felt the worst, and like there was just nothing I could do about it, was when I was with my improv group, and we were performing on New Year's Eve in Battle Creek, Michigan at Kellogg Arena for over 4,000 people. But we were at Kellogg Arena, and they didn't really have a good stage for us, so they put us on scaffolding that was about 20 feet up in the air, with microphones that went through the house system, like they had the announcer system, like... Starting, starting, four, four to count, you know. Weird. And so everything we said was delayed. And about three scenes into it, 15 minutes in the show, we have a scene where we're asking questions, and, or the crowd asked questions, and three people answered as one. And so the question from all over the arena was, when does the comedy start? <laughs> and we're like, we're like, oh, it's maybe not going to start tonight. And after four scenes, they just shut us down. Like, 
the, the guy who booked it was like, this was a horrible mistake. We didn't set you guys up properly. So we're just wow. going to kick up the music here. So that, that was in a group setting, though. Um, a couple of things that come to mind as far as being on stage. One time, and this is kind of just a situation thing. It's not so much direct heckling, but I was doing a show. It was one of these deals where it was like a Holiday Inn Tuesday night kind of thing before the weekend run. And everybody was having a great show. The two guys in front of me, then I get up there, I'm 30 minutes into it. Great show, couldn't ask for anything better. Then the guy that owns the bar sits down at the edge of the bar, which is like 15 feet from the stage, and he just starts talking to somebody on his cell phone. Like, here's the guy that should be out of the room to let everybody else enjoy it. And the whole crowd is looking at him, and I know he's got my paycheck, so you know, I can't come off too hard on him. But I've got to shut him down so I can continue the show. And it was the hardest thing in the world to kind of get his attention uh-huh. at first because his back was to me, and he's just like, yeah, we got the comedy show going on, you know. So I got quiet enough to where he could hear over time that I wasn't talking. Like, I just stopped talking so he could hear himself talking. And then he kind of realized what he was doing. And he goes, oh, I guess I better go out in the parking lot now. They're all staring at me. So he wanders off and the show continues. So, I mean, that wasn't as bad as it could be. But those are, like, situations where... That's the owner. Yeah, it's the owner. Like, you know, shouldn't. he's got his check right there, my check in his pocket. (laughs) So I can't really run run him out on the railroad, but it's, it's tricky. It's been a long time since I've had somebody like directly heckle me and try to take me down and mm. I think it's partially because my act like I'm kind of a friendly guy so mm. if anybody did that the crowd would kind of get on them yeah like I'm trying to, it's been a so long I can't think back of some time where it was just like really brutal there were here's another weird situation I just remember I was doing a fundraiser at the bar back in Columbus Ohio probably like in 95 long time ago 20 something years ago right and I didn't know that if this fundraiser they were going to throw money on the stage when they liked the comedian, and that was how they're going to donate. All right? Okay. So I'm the, I'm the, I missed the ground rules of this whole thing. So I'm the first guy on, about 10 minutes in my set, uh, big silver dollar barely misses my, my head. Like, and then more... more throwing silver dollars? In yeah, I know. I was like, hey, could go either way. But like, I didn't know that that was going on, so I started yelling at the guy. I'm like, you know, at least throw a dollar bill or something where, you know, He's like, we're trying to raise money, you idiot. <laughs> My bad. I didn't know, you know. Mm. So that, that was one where I felt like somebody was assaulting me, you know. Uh, and now that we're talking, here's another one that was bad because it was un- unsafe. I just remember mm. this. I was doing a fundraiser. I do a lot of fundraisers. This was up somewhere like in Lincoln, Nebraska or Kearney, Nebraska, way up in the mm. Midwest. And it was me and another comic. And the crowd... I mean, they had paid, I think it was 160 bucks per table for eight seats, so like 20 bucks a, a ticket. But pe- companies and corporations were buying tables and letting their employees go to the comedy show. So we're up there. The MC's on stage. It's a two-act show, so he's going to do like 20, and I'm going to do like an hour and 10. And five minutes into it, they're giving him a hard time. Like this table right up front, and they just keep going at him and going at him. And he handles it pretty well. Then they take a little 10-minute break. Then they bring me out. And for about 30 minutes, everything's cool. And then, as I'm wrapping up my show, I start pulling out the guitar and doing some stuff. They like that. Then at the very end, I get somebody on stage to sing with me. It's one of these bits that I always do. And as that guy's getting on stage, this table of punks up there in the front sort of throw ice on the stage at me, at my guitar, and at the other guy. Now, Hmm. if it was just me, you know, I'd probably pick up the ice and throw it back at the guy. I was kind of a punk back in the day. I could have done that. But, like, to me, they were getting ready to injure somebody that just stepped on the stage to help the show out. And so I got, I just said, hey, dude, I'm not performing until this table leaves. Like I just said, we've been here long. This could be the end of the show or 
you eight people can get up and leave and we can continue on. So it took about three minutes. The table decided to leave and it was like a standing ovation. Then we went back and did another 20 minutes of comedy. So sometimes you just got to... Were they drunk? Yeah. Yeah, they were... To- it was a Friday night. You know, the show didn't start till 10, so they were already pretty mm-hmm. hammered. And the, I guess the one thing that I kind of maybe halfway into my career started doing was if if I don't have respect from the crowd, I don't care if I finish the show or not. I'll refund all their money personally. Like, I get to that point where, so I'll just call this table out. You know, either you guys go or I go. It doesn't matter to me either way. I'll, you know. So mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things where they don't know that I'm really calling their bluff, and when I stay in the back until they leave, they leave. So I'd rather do that than you know let them continue on and yeah. show people how to ruin a show. You don't want that, that weed growing. Um, but nobody's ever shot at me. Uh, nobody's ever followed me out to the car after the show. Your other other comedians like razz you after in backstage or heckle you kind of from yeah, maybe well, not in front of the crowd. Yeah, sometimes when you work with your buddies, they will. No. Like that's kind of a fun heckling where you know they're in the back of the room and a joke doesn't go over. They're like ha ha, like to let you know, <laughs> just to let you know they're there. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of like the camaraderie kind of bullying, you know, kind of mm. heckling. But yeah, it, it can. I've seen things go down where it's gotten really ugly, and I've seen comics invite heckling thinking it's going to help their show out and it ultimately backfires on them the trick with heckling is typically when when you do slam a heckler it gets a huge laugh and partially because you shut him down the other half is because the crowd really knows that was a real moment this wasn't something he does every week or he couldn't have planted that guy or this really happened so it has an extra awareness to it then you go back to your regular show and it's never going to reach that dynamic of con- you know conflict and a funny resolution and so a lot of comics will go back and try to talk to that heckler again mm-hmm. to kind of get it going again. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, the poor bouncer at the club doesn't know whether to step forward or step back because you brought the heckler back into the situation. Mm-hmm. So I guess if there's one tip I could say at the conclusion of this is make sure that when you slam a heckler, they're done, and you let the bouncer take it from there. Because mm-hmm. if, if not, the bouncer's going to hate you for like disarming what they just did to help you out. Mm-hmm. All right. Who else has a question? My name is Jahi, and uh, my question is, when writing jokes with other comics, uh, how do you decide who gets the joke, or is it just for uh, sharpening each other? Yeah, when you, when you write with somebody and you get to that point where you get a big laugh on something, uh, you, you need to make it clear that I'm taking this or you're taking this, but you don't want to walk out there thinking that both of you are taking it. Like, You know what I'm saying? Like, If, if me and you just wrote a joke together... Probably we started off with my premise or your premise. And so whoever came up with a joke that goes with that, you know, if it's your premise, I'm going to give it to you. And then for five minutes we'll talk about my premise and you'll help me write some jokes that go with mine. But if there's something that falls kind of in between, you know, we got done with your premise and my premise and now we're just talking and all of a sudden we land on something funny. Before we leave, one of us should say, hey, are you going to use that or is that mine? And, you know, one person usually says, hey, it's yours. But you want to make sure before you leave because it, it, there are cases, of course, where people go off and then they both do that joke. And people are like, hey, that was so-and-so's joke. Like, no, man, I wrote that with him. Well, he did it last night. So, you know, make sure it's clear on the way out. But it's, it, it's a real thing that happens, you know. When I co-write with people, we usually go around. I usually write with two or three. And for seven minutes, we'll do one guy's bit. And we'll work on that as much as we can get. And the timer goes off and we switch to somebody else. And even with people that, you know, I've done comedy for 25 years and the guys I usually write with are anywhere around that, even after seven minutes, we've kind of mined it pretty deep and you've gotten some things. And that's why we just spend seven minutes. You could spend an hour, 
but after a while, comics are hard to keep on track. So seven minutes gives us like a, a finite deadline. We got to hit that with something before we move on to somebody else. Good All right, thank you. Yeah, you bet. My name is John, and I was wondering, what is the worst experience you've had in the, on the road? Say, a, like a club not paying you, the show not happening, hotel. Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> this is the fun part, right? We don't talk about this in the writing class too much, but yeah. It is a business, and it's an ugly business, and things can go down. Uh, the things that stand out over time, okay, so only once did I not get paid. I'm very fortunate. Uh, I've heard a lot of horror stories from comics. Usually you'll hear about a club bouncing checks before you get there, but sometimes you're the first person they bounce a check on. Uh, and back at the time when that check bounced, I mean, I was lucky to have 135 bucks in my checking account. You know, So a $300 check for MCing somewhere at a week at a comedy club, was a big thing and when that sucker bounced it bounced everything that was you know the next five checks behind it and then you get that check fee was it back then it was like 20 bucks for it so it was it was bad i eventually got paid for it but it was a, a lot of a lot of hassle the thing that used to irritate me the most was and this as i got older was the case i didn't care when i was younger but as you get older some clubs don't treat you like a human like they put you up at a, you know a good club will put you up at a nice hotel or a condo that they keep clean and it's pretty safe. But a club that's struggling, they lose all those things because they're struggling. They start putting you in really cheap places to save them a dime. They got to a point at one place where they had put me at a hotel that was literally under an on-ramp. So it was noisy. It was like a $28 a night hotel. And on the hood of my car at midnight, there's two guys with guns drinking double deuces, you know, talking about whatever, like gang stuff. And it's right outside my window. And there's no way I'm going to fall asleep with two guys with guns right outside my window in the car. And so I called the front desk and I said, hey, uh, this is room whatever it was, 104. There's two guys sitting on my car right outside my window with guns. Uh, could you run security out by them and at least let you know you got security? And this guy's like, do not make them mad. They will shoot a hole in the window. Like, I'm like, I'm like, how about me? I'm the guy who paid, you know, I'm in your hotel. I said, I said is there anything I can do? I said, I'm, I think I'm going to call the police because I don't feel safe. Do not call the police. Well, you know, so I called the police, you know, and they ran them off. And then I hopped in the car and I drove to the comedy club and sat in the parking spot until they opened up at 10 a.m. and said, listen, I can go back to that hotel if you think it's safe. But I, would you put your mom or your kid or your wife in that hotel? I don't think you would. So it's 28 bucks. I said, that's all you're willing to spend on the comedian. How about I take the 28 bucks, I'll put it with 70 bucks, and I go stay at the Holiday Inn or whatever. I said, I don't mind you know, upgrading myself, but you know that's not a safe place. And I did that. That was the first week I was working at that club, the first night that I worked at the club. So it was a judgment. Like I could have lost that. The guy could have said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll just hire somebody else. And nobody else ever complained. Six months they've been putting comics in there, and I was the first person to complain. I couldn't believe it. So I, the next day, or, you know, when I showed up in the parking lot, he eventually showed up. We talked it out, and he, he switched hotels. You know, it wasn't much better. Uh, it was safer. It's a better part of the town, and I appreciated that. And no comic had to stay at that cheap hotel after that. So sometimes, kind of like the other story, I don't mind standing up for myself if I just don't think I'm being treated humanely. And I could have toughed out that week underneath that overpass, that you know, if there weren't guys with guns sitting on the hood of my car. That was kind of like, really, this is what comedy is. You know, at that point, I was, I think, 28 years old. And I started wanting to be treated like, you know, be treated like a real person. So um, that kind of jumps out in mind. 
Then there's all kinds of other things that happen to you when you travel. You know, your car breaking down, uh, frustrating. Like I remember going from Chicago to Davenport, Iowa. My first, again, my first week at that club, trying to make a good impression. So I get up early. It's not that long of a drive, but I get up early, like eight o'clock Chicago time, and go to start my car, and the windshield wiper flew off, and it's down. I mean, it's a downpour, and it, like it literally, like, and so I get an umbrella, go back, try to you know wire it back on. It's just not working. Then the other uh, windshield wiper, the rubber was so bad on it, it was like scraping the windshield, like leaving mines in it. And I've got to drive through this storm, and it's going to be storming all day to, to Iowa. So I take my car. There's luckily a, a garage pretty close by. I take it by, and they say they can go to the junkyard, and the, the motor had like shorted out in the process. So they, they got a motor. They installed it. The sun's starting to come out a little bit. It's like 2.30. I have just enough time to drive all the way across Illinois to Davenport, Iowa get halfway across it starts raining again I go to turn on my windshield wipers they had installed the motor somehow backwards or they got the wrong one and it twisted the arm off the windshield wiper the other way and so for about two hours I had my hand as the windshield wiper on this Isuzu pickup truck three cylinder and uh, pull into the club just totally drenched right at showtime and uh, luckily the feature act was a guy I knew about the same size as me and it's before cell phones and all this, so I, this, their first impression is this soggy guy who's been rained on for two hours. And uh, my buddy, like, he goes, hey, man, I've still got my clothes in my car. Go grab something. You've got 10 minutes before you hit the stage. So literally, as I'm buttoning up my shirt, they're like, Rick Roberts! <laughs> and that was, you know, again, my first impression on that club. So there's tons of stress that come with the traveling of it, you know, those kind of things. Um, on, this, on last week's podcast, uh, I talked about some of the seven decisions that comics have to face and there's some tough situations that are kind of pivotal turning points where you kind of got to decide to go forward or not and uh, kind of dig deeper in some different ones that you might like to listen to. Now, have you ever turned down a gig? Like someone's called you up before and said, will you do this? And you just said, no, I won't perform for you? Yes. Um, Not because I didn't respect the group. Um, I can think of three really quick ones. One was a a nudist... uh, beach camp in florida and basically they would see whoever's working at the side splitters in tampa from tuesday through sunday and they would try to hire them on monday since they were in town a clothing optional beach and i'm like nah i'm not gonna like well uh, you don't have if you don't want to you know go nude you can wear your clothes i'm like i just don't want to be staring at <laughs> you know it's probably not going to be nearly as good as the perfect situation there so i turned that one down uh and fairly recently i've, I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast but uh, people that want to perform at colleges and it's just not my group anymore. I can do it, and we can sort of enjoy it, but there's much better comic, comics mm-hmm. out there to handle that. And that was kind of a tough thing to make peace with. You know, but I'm 47. My topics are not what the 22-year-old guy is normally going to be tuned into. And so that would be a situation where halfway through, we, I'd be looking at the book or going, told you. you know. So even though colleges pay pretty good, and I can, everybody can use money to pay their bills, I just had to say, you know, I'm just not that guy anymore. Mm. So... That's not easy. It, it really isn't. You know, it's like you, you know exactly how much money you're not making because they tell you. <laughs> but I usually take those situations and I, you know, I think about two or three of my comedian buddies who've hooked me up with gigs over the years that they couldn't do either because they were double booked or what have you, and I kind of throw it their way. So there, there's there's tough nights though where you're sitting there going, man, you know. And over the course of a year, there's four or five like those that pile up. Uh, other times where. 
I'm a good fit for the gig, but the, the, the window of time to get there is too tight to where I don't want that stress on me or the person that hired me. I, I used to not acknowledge that window and make it happen one way or the other. You know what I mean? Like, especially like I mentioned earlier in the class, like December is my busy, busy, busy time. And there can be some, some Decembers where there's 20 gigs in 17 days or 23 gigs in 20 days. It's that busy. Two gigs in the same day on opposite sides of the country if you can make the flight. But now that I'm a little bit older, I'd rather just have the one gig and make sure I get up early and take the first flight to get the next one instead of trying to make two in one day. Like it's just, if, if somebody's really insistent, like we really want you, and it's, a, it's the second gig of the day, which only has happened a couple of times, I say, well, listen, I'll try to make it, but in case there's a travel delay, here's my backup. Somebody lives in Nashville, does a great job, and if he's actually going to do a better show for you than I will if I can't make it. And I've done that for my buddy a couple of times too. So, I just over time you kind of realize the the money's not everything. Your reputation is is everything. And so, if you take the money and it's at the you know disadvantage of your reputation, the money's not worth it. Good question. All right, tell us who you are and your question. Uh, My name is Miranda Rodig, and I was wondering is it is it is it hard to do all the traveling and still maintain a family life? It can be tricky. You know the. I guess the good thing with me is every step of the way, my family has grown with me in the process. Like I didn't marry somebody that had two kids and all of a sudden I was gone all the time. So it's, it's not easy on my wife when I go for stretches for sure. And with a three-year-old, even three hours is kind of rough. <laughs> my three-year-old's like a dictator. But um, it's tricky. Like my wife, the great thing is she met me when I was doing comedy clubs and so we call on the phone. It was back when email just started happening. Like My email was 763-27.416 at CompuServe.com. <laughs> I'm like, any girl that can remember that, she's worth you know keeping up with. And so even though that was kind of even before we were dating, once we dated, she kind of knew my schedule and how long I was going to be out of town. She was pretty busy with her career when she, we first got married and stuff. And then as we did kind of settle in, got our house, those kinds of things, I realized I didn't want to be gone all the time. Because th- there were stretches before I got married um, before I got engaged especially, where I'd be gone like nine or ten weeks. Like I'd have somebody collect my mail for me and I'd have them write some checks for my bills and I was just gone. But once I got married, that was not I knew that wasn't going to work and I didn't want it to be that way. Then when we had our first kid, it was really tough to be gone at any comedy club anymore for a week because, you know, your babies are only babies at one point. Then they grow up and it was a little bit tricky and I kind of made the commitment that I would never do, you know, more than... I think seven days out at a time. I would only do that sporadically. Sometimes, I mean, there was a couple times after my son was my firstborn, about one years old, where I got like thing for to do a cruise, and that's a two-week thing. He may have been two at the time, so I'd waited a while. But when I got back, like, remember him saying, "Papa, Papa, two weeks too long." <laughs> I'm like, oh, it crushes me, man. And and honestly, you don't know that you're missed until somebody says it like that. And that little dude said, "I'm like, oh man." And so I think the longest I've been out at any point since my three-year-old's been born in the past three years is maybe 10 days. That's only been once or twice. Because I, I honestly don't like to be gone that much. The uh, thing I try to do if, if I am gone for a stretch like that is make sure I get on the phone with them. Uh, we Skyped for a while and we just kind of forgot to do it, you know. And sometimes the Skype is not as, it's not worth the hassle, especially with like little kids. They're just like running all over the house and they'll stay in frame. <laughs> But I always try to have that fatherly presence in the home when I'm gone. And I have to be really aware of that as my kids get older. You know, if I see them getting out of line, it's probably not their fault. It's probably mine for not being around. 
So it's something that's always in my mind. And it's part of the reason why I transitioned to do more like corporate gigs and stuff where I'm gone one or two days here and there, you know, 10 days a month instead of being gone 10 days in a row. That's a good question. Awesome. Thank you. I'm Laura, and after 25 years being in the comedy world, I'm sure you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of great people. Could you tell us some of your favorite comedians to work with and why? That's a great question, and I don't think I've ever talked about that in 102 episodes. So if I have, forgive me because it's been a lot. But, man, what's really cool is when you first start, when you first get paid to work, even just to do a show at the same time as somebody you've seen on TV, like mm-hmm. they, they're just regular people, but when you've seen them on TV before, you're like, Oh, yeah, this is cool. And so early on when I got to MC for people that had been on Saturday Night Live, you know, the first first round of people I worked with in the club was like Kevin Nealon, uh, Victoria Jackson, um, trying to think a few others from the, the early days, uh, Jim Brewer. Mm-hmm. Jim Brewer, when I worked with him, like I was in college when he was on Saturday Night Live, so I kind of missed him because we, you know, we didn't <laughs> watch TV for four years. And so I kind of knew about him, but I didn't realize how big he was when I worked with him. And like, I just had never seen a crowd give a standing O when somebody walked onto the stage before. So that, that blew my mind. And then over time, uh, Stephen Wright, that was a great experience. In fact, I got to work with him two different times. And he was really cool. He was uh, super nice. And to the, I guess the super cool thing is you're on stage and you look over and Stephen Wright's laughing at your joke. Like, oh, you know, especially, mm-hmm. especially even now it'd be cool. But when I first started, I'm like, I can't believe he's in, in the room right now. Like, he should be in the back, in the green room and drinking a Perrier or whatever. <laughs> But he's, he came out and watched my set. Uh, Bobcat Goldthwait, I used to work with a lot in the comedy clubs, and he still does a few comedy clubs mm-hmm. to kind of sharpen himself. But I always thought he was, you know, I saw him on those Police Academy movies and everything else. So seeing him live and doing his show, and he was kind of like a rock star when he got on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, leather jacket, and he was just kind of like, put, he was exactly 45 minutes. He's one of those guys that didn't have an ego about it. Like, a lot of p- famous people, you know, they usually would do like 45 to an hour. But a lot of them would do like an hour and a half just because they're who they are. But Bobcat was like, I'm getting paid for 45. I'm doing 45. And he was out, like on the nose. Like he had it down. I'm trying to think if there's any, I'm sure there's a few I'm leaving out. There are comics that I haven't worked with yet that I would have loved to have worked with. You know, like for some reason, I've never worked with Jeff Foxworthy. Got a million buddies who have. Um, I'm good friends with Larry the Cable Guy, mm-hmm. Dan Whitney, and I've worked with him. You know, I worked with him before he was Larry the Cable Guy <laughs> back in '91 at the Covington Funny Bone in Covington, Kentucky, like crazy. So, uh, his wife and my wife are pretty good buddies, and we both have sons with the same name that were born just like weeks <laughs> separate from each other. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So there's a, still a few that I haven't worked with that I'd like to. Um, you know, Ron White, I've worked mm-hmm. with, of course, a lot of those guys. Bill Engvall, a couple times back in the comedy club days, like at the Youngstown Funny Farm. Here's your sign. I had never heard of him, but he was packing the house way back in the mid-90s and stuff. Uh, that's probably it. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, my, the biggest crowd I worked with is, with the name was uh, Weird Al Yankovic. Mm-hmm. Who, I don't know if you guys know Weird Al, but have you ever seen him live? Mm-mm. His band is phenomenal. Like They are incredible. They, that, they can cover everything, obviously, because they're doing Weird Al parody songs of famous artists, but they are incredibly good. And I got to do a opening set for him at the Bridgestone Arena before his Bridgestone back when it was Gaylord. Yeah. And that was a, I think they divided half the hockey rink off and that was a pretty cool thing. And he came up after the show and had a couple of callbacks for me. Oh, cool. And I worked with him again like at a fair somewhere in Iowa, you know, <laughs> and he was pretty cool then too. Uh, I've got a second round. Tell us again who you are. Okay, uh, I'm Austin and uh, 
There are no comedy clubs within two hours of where I live. Never seen open mic night, no advertisements. How do I find open mic nights or places to perform? Cool. Where do you live? Uh, Tuscumbia, Alabama. All right. Yeah, there's no clubs there. <laughs> How's that? How far is that from Huntsville? Uh, that is an hour from Huntsville. Okay. Well, I know Huntsville has a pretty good comedy scene going. The first thing I would do is, is jump on Facebook and look in the Facebook groups. Search Alabama comedy because there's a Facebook group for that. And so you'll know what's going on in Birmingham and Huntsville for sure. The other thing I would do if that was me in that situation and I lived an hour from anything going on is start my own night. Start a monthly show. I would try to pull off an every week thing. But find a bar or a restaurant or even a little hotel or someplace that has a meeting space big enough for 20 or 50 people, somewhere in there, and ask them if you could put on a comedy show in there. And if, if you wanted to work out the logistics of that, uh, money-wise and contracts, I've got a couple podcasts on that I can point you towards. But you can set up your own show. The great thing about that is you can do as much time as you want because it's your show. And you can invite comics to come down from Huntsville. There's, there's a few there for sure. Birmingham, there's several comics. And there's comics that live in Nashville that would come down to do time. You know, Don't assume that everybody has to come down will get paid or is expecting to get paid. Just let them know, hey, I've got this stage. It's, it's a good crowd. Once you get it rolling, that's probably something the town will look forward to. If there's a college nearby, is there a college nearby? Yes. So that might be my first place to go is talk to um, the Dean of Student Affairs and ask if they would like a, a monthly comedy show going on. So you could host that. Invite students from the college to be the comics. They're going to bring their friends out. They might not be funny to you, but at least they're paying the bills. They're paying five bucks ahead to get in or whatever you decide. And so you're making money to practice comedy. Okay. First thing I would do. And honestly, for 200 bucks, you could buy a PA system if the place doesn't have one. And you'll have that with you always. You know, Get a sure SM58 microphone and a 20-foot cord, and you're good to go. Okay. Thank you. All right. Let me know when that starts so I can come down and do it. Yes, sir. All right. Well, that's the podcast today. Uh, upcoming performance class dates, if you want to jump in, we've got a new performance class coming up Mondays, June 13th, 20th, and 27th. That'll be just down the road from Zaney's in Nashville on 8th Avenue at SIR, uh, 6 to 8 o'clock. If you want to get on that, let me know, schooloflast at gmail.com. And if you want to learn more about the business of comedy, we'll have that seminar coming up again on Sunday, June 12th from 1 to 4. That's in the uh, Hermitage side of Mount Juliet, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. If you're interested in either of those, just give me a holler, schooloflast at gmail.com, and we'll get your spot saved. Thanks, guys, for taking the three weeks of classes, and I hope to see you guys down the road. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.